Yulia Yurchenko is a senior lecturer and researcher in political economy at University of Greenwich. She is currently in Ukraine on an extraordinary leave, and while she writes that she's for the moment in relative safety, that could of course change at any moment. Being a Ukrainian, an activist, and an academic, Yulia traveled to Ukraine on February 19th as part of a fact-finding and solidarity mission with a number of MPs, trade unionists, and journalists. The goal, she says of this mission, is to connect with civil society organizations, trade unions, activists, and politicians, and to, quote, express direct cross-border solidarity from the UK working class to the Ukrainian working class. I find it stunning that when the delegation left on February 22nd, she decided to stay behind to support both her family there and the resistance to this ongoing campaign of Russian imperialist aggression that she stresses is far from a new phenomenon. In fact, she not only demands that Ukraine's foreign debt be cancelled as a means of allowing the country to recover and repair, but that the international community provide reparations for eight years of inaction on Russian aggression. If we want to understand this war, Yulia points out, it's going to be necessary to look past the headlines. The simplistic black and white portrayals we're receiving don't do justice to the complexity of the situation. And although she recognizes that this lack of nuance in large part results from a desire to give the public a quote, coherent frame, it's just patently the case that right now conventional frames don't work, in her words. And for that reason, we need to deeply reassess what constitutes evidence, even, and develop methods of analyzing disinformation, emotion, belonging, statehood, and aggression beyond traditional Western scholarship and standard modes of political science. While we're still encouraged to think in terms of the rule of law when trying to understand these sorts of conflicts, Yurchenko emphasizes that societies without the rule of law require us to be more flexible in our theorizing. She says we need to incorporate interdisciplinary and open-minded frameworks to understand what's happening. This is what I kept hearing in my conversation with Yulia, a tension between wanting to herself offer clarity and knowing that the whole situation is on some level hopelessly complicated. So for that reason, in part, she says she's necessarily hopeful that peace is possible, but has to be pragmatic about the evidence, which suggests that the war is going to drag on. She continues communicating publicly for peace. She talks at the beginning of our conversation about the fact that she derives a lot of strength from just fighting for a future through care that these contributions to collective living on have become a kind of personal coping mechanism. It speaks to the spirit of Yurchenko's writing as well. Her book, Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, is not only full of profound analysis, it also importantly centers the living labor of workers, people who are focused not on extraction, profit, and domination, but on trying to care for themselves and their families. These people are not as she puts it here, just pawns in imperialist games. They can't be understood in those, in those terms, which is often how they're represented in the media. They deserve collective ownership of their future and to be trusted with it. But in the face of that, we have oligarchy, a system whereby assets, even virtual ones, are increasingly stashed away from the public. Oligarchs are using mechanisms available to them 
in a global capitalist economy in order to disguise their domination. And people like Putin exploit the global demand for oil. The aim has to be to recognize the, as she puts it, narcissistic sadism of empire, to understand the roots of colonialist and imperialist behavior in white supremacy and patriarchy. Putin embodies these things in a kind of sick, hyper-masculine way, and he's established a kleptocratic regime in Russia, in part by naturalizing this abusive mentality. In the end, she argues that we must stop competing for the crumbs of empire. We need to imagine a future of demilitarization. We need to imagine a world in which hate and resentment and competition for those crumbs no longer drives world affairs. In short, to gesture to a moment at the end of this conversation, we need to imagine the future before we can build it. You've articulated uh, an aggressively decolonial and, you know, uh, anti-imperial and, and um, you know, de-escalation politics. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm just like grateful that you could you could talk to me given your your current situation. Thank you for reaching out. It's I think it's it's important to get more critical narratives out there because mm-hmm. uh you know despite the despite the coverage of this phase of this conflict which is eight years old being significantly more advanced than what it was in 2014 not least because of defunding of central eastern european studies and russian studies and correspondence over the years um but but still, like you know, we 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 still get uh, quite a lot of black and white coverage, mm-hmm. uh, and um, yeah, and uh, and a, a little bit kind of polar attitudes, if you like. So I think I think it's important to develop um, analyses that are uh, more nuanced and that also are not afraid of um, contradictions that are at place. So without romanticizing or denigrating either side, mm-hmm. uh, we need we need to be able to, to to assess critically the actions of everyone involved, uh, and that's that's the only way that we can start thinking about what kind of trajectories of solutions and reconciliations and hopefully peacemaking can there be. Yeah, and I think your your thinking models that which is you know why i you know i wanted to obviously speak with you but why i i i think everyone needs to um spend some time with your book but you know i mean like and just to that point of of simplification and and things being black and white like i i do i am curious to know like how you are experiencing the conflict how you're helping to organize for peace in the face of this this war um, and how you're managing, I mean, all the anxiety and grief you must be going through in relationship to, in part, you know, not just the um, the dire situation on the ground, but also the sense that there is, and your work is so insightful on this too, like an information war happening where, you know, the mainstream news in in the West certainly is is reporting the, the numbers, right? 1,200 civilians killed, 20 attacks mm-hmm. on healthcare facilities. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 reproducing footage out of Mar- Maripol of the bombing of a maternity hospital. These things are tragic. It matters, I think, that you know the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. Oksana uh, Markarova is saying that just flatly, Ukraine is winning the war. 
um, even though it, it's hard to kind of see it in those clear terms, I guess, like, first of all, how are you assessing the state of the conflict right now? I think that in terms of the resolve and spirits, Ukraine certainly is winning this conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, what the, considering uh, what kind of blitzkrieg equivalent uh, Russia was planning to have here, they they haven't got it. Their uh, their military losses, their personnel losses, their machinery losses are colossal compared to the Ukrainian army. Especially if we think in if we think about the proportions uh, of what the proportions of what what Ukrainian military uh, represents uh, compared mm-hmm. to the Russian military, or well, what at least they they have been telling the world their military is because what we're actually seeing a lot is that the the long the the, the many years and decades of corruption and embezzlement are reflected in the in the uh, underpreparedness uh, and the poverty of equipment of the russian army that that is coming in from the fatigues to the to the machinery to the arms to the inside of of these kind of borderline cardboard tanks uh, so that there is right. there is that kind of dimension, and in that in that sense, I suppose, in the sense of, you know, the will to fight, the spirit, the kind of the morale of the troops and the morale of population, Ukraine is winning, and um, in many senses, in this in this uh, conflict, Ukraine is on the right side of history. But uh, there, there, of course, again, you know, the history, the, the story is not as this as black and white, and that. The civilian casualties, the uh, destruction to infrastructure, the destruction to uh, cultural heritage, to uh, to uh, civil engineering object, uh, to to the buildings that can be classed as you know, civil engineer objects, uh, the residential buildings is immense already. The human suffering, the internally displaced people, the refugees, the the collective trauma and the individual trauma on. On families, on environment, uh, on on pets and agriculture and husbandry, mm-hmm. are immense, and that that cannot be denied. Uh, you know, when we hear uh, politicians from Ukraine speaking with a lot of courage and and resolve and strength uh, and rigor, well, um, I, I I applaud them for that, and it's their job, right? They need to keep mm-hmm. the morale going. They need to reassure the population that Ukrainian army. Has got it under control. That you know they're doing everything they can uh, to protect uh, our cities, to protect our population. Uh, that our territorial defense is uh, has got things under control, and that we will win all of our cities back. They will be saying this, and they should be saying this, right? Right. Uh, but uh, and and then they're doing a really good job of it. Uh, but at the same time, they they do recognize um, the losses. Um, I think the way that the, the kind of the rhetorical style that they have chosen is actually quite, quite useful and pragmatic in the current situation. But to say that, um, you know, that it's some sort of like, you know, neat, neat victory or anything like that, or that we are one day away from declaring a, a full victory over Russians uh, invading the country, we are clearly not, not quite there yet. And indeed, you know, when when such heavy losses have been sustained by both sides, no no victory is by by either side is is going to be bloodless or uh, unstained. So um, 
yeah, like in an, in an absolute sense, there are, there are no victors in any wars. You know, um, there is, of course, the whole kind of historical relationship between Ukraine and Russia and the kind of decolonial anti-imperial aspect of this war. And not that, uh, you know, Ukrainian leaders necessarily frame it quite in those terms. Sometimes they do appeal to this historical relationship, sometimes for, sometimes in fortunate, sometimes in more unfortunate terms. But there is an appeal to... Uh, the kind of historical claims that Russia has had with its imperial ambitions over over uh, what is now Ukraine, um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, uh, the situation is quite complex. Of course, yeah. the way that I see it, I'm not sure that um, you know. I, I I do remain hopeful that this horror will be over sooner than later. Yet, kind of the pragmatist in me thinks that it may drag for quite some time. Um, and I, I try to focus on the positives and, you know, as you say, like, you know, how you cope with this. Well, the initial shock has worn off. And to some extent, you know, you kind of you start losing an ability to cry. It's, it's almost some sort of internal coping mechanism. There is a lot about this written in scholarship on trauma, especially wartime trauma, you sort of, you start, in order to protect yourself from crashing, you start mentally distancing from what's going on and as if, you know, leaving your body and observing yourself as if you're in a film, you need to get on with everyday life, you need to uh, maybe help the volunteers a bit, maybe uh, cheer up a relative, maybe engage uh, with, you know, some sort of localized support yeah so i think there mm -hmm. is you know there are certain coping mechanisms and one one of those things you know and we were talking about this with my organization social movement here the kind of the political left um that you know we we all have we each have our own station our skills and our expertise and something that we can contribute in in this collective horror show and one of the things that i can do that i know is meaningful and it's probably more meaningful than me making soup to displaced people is to have this interview with you and tell a story from a different angle because this is something that I can do that probably not everybody else can do in the same way. Mm -hmm. So if we all, and I've seen calls on social media locally uh, and on a national, like on national forums that, uh, you know, people, especially in the, in the cities, in the, in towns where, there isn't as much as much disruption and fighting should try to carry on as normal as much as possible uh like normal economic activity needs to carry on uh, various goods need to be produced services need to be made people need to continue uh being like you know being able to make uh to make money to pay to pay their bills to keep the economy going but also to produce goods that are needed for those who are uh, whose cities are under siege Right. And there is, and and in that, I think I find uh, strength in in doing in doing this interview with you, for example, or uh, uh, organizing campaigning around the debt cancellation of Ukraine. I'm I'm involved in that. I've been in a couple of calls today, and we've organized the petition, and we are writing to different political parties with my organization. So, kind of that that kind of that kind of front and that kind of fighting is very important and it gives you strength to carry on because you know that uh, fighting for the future and the present, Im like immediate short-term and long-term of Ukraine 
is not only on the barricades. It's also in cooking meals for those in the shelters. It's organizing their safe transfer uh, away from bombs. It's in uh, it's in coverage in it's inadequate coverage in the media. Uh, it's 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 in all sorts of different dimensions, and that's that and that's the. the, the in, in getting engaged in that uh, is is a is a very useful coping mechanism. It's mm-hmm. that, and also um, a form of um, you know kind of digital hygiene, or like rather information hygiene. So I I I lim- I kind of I doze news. So I, I give myself a couple like you know I I I read news in segments. It used to be kind of nonstop following all of the updates and now I, I take breaks because otherwise you just cannot do anything else. Like you're constantly dragged into this black hole of horror. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned like, you know, what, what kind of other things would I do in terms of organizing? So I'm, I'm part of the Ukraine solidarity campaign in the UK and I'm part of the social movement or social uh, political organization in Ukraine uh, that have, uh, that have uh, long, uh, relationships of solidarity and collaboration so through the ukraine solidarity campaign i constantly communicate with them and they're uh we're talking about what strategically what kind of meetings what kind of parliamentary briefings can be done what kind of demos and petitions and publications and so those things are being done so today for example they had the demo outside gazprom office that continues operating in london as if nothing is happening Hmm. You know, despite so-called sanctions and whatnot, that Gazprom office is operating uh, as per, like you know, um, business right. as usual. So there was a demo there, and there will be uh, after after we've recorded this in an hour, there will be another political meeting with local activists in London, where some of uh, some of uh, my activist colleagues here in Ukraine will be present as well. So like, there is this kind of work with with the Labour Party and uh, different parliamentary committees trying to brief them on what is going on in Ukraine so that they can make more informed decisions about what's going on on the ground. Here in Ukraine, uh, with this organization, Social Social Movement, uh, we've been organizing uh, transport of meds uh, for people in the shelters and on the barricades in Kiev and Kharkiv, for example, amongst other places, from Poland, because some of the medications, uh, once the martial law was declared, some of the meds and, you know, like first aid kits and, um, you know, blood thickeners and a bunch of other things, uh, anything that's on the list of tactical medication, uh, those, uh, those are difficult to, if not impossible to get in pharmacies because you can get them only on prescription or if you have an order from the, uh, from through one of the battalions, you know, of territorial defense or through the military. So, if there are any sort of self-organized people, you know, fighting in the streets, or uh, if some if some of those uh, if something on that list is needed uh, in the shelters, sometimes it makes more sense to kind of buy them in Poland and get them pass them through the train mm-hmm. or by car mm-hmm. here. Um, of course, there are also lots of uh, various. Um, NGOs and volunteer organizations that are uh, that have very well developed networks that date back to 2014, and since then, you know, they still work and they they are quite organized. But uh, you know, there there are still bits and pieces that are not catered for, so we try to kind of to help with that. 
But then there are also short-term and long-term needs of the country as a whole. So Ukraine, for example, is, is Ukraine is riddled with the second largest debt mm-hmm. with IMF. It's it's a heavily indebted economy, and uh, we are now campaigning. Uh, directly through writing to various politicians and through organizing a, a petition and working with different organizations, such as, for example, the Debt Jubilee Campaign of the UK, to to get Ukraine's foreign debt written off and to lobby for more financial aid mm-hmm. um, uh, to Ukraine so it can actually uh, prioritize the military and humanitarian needs of its population right now rather than uh, servicing its crippling debts. Uh, so those kind of things. Yeah, that's incredible. It sounds like you're just like doing the work of relentlessly trying to build collective power. Um, and I can't imagine what it means to have to like steal yourself to do that. But obviously you just consider it to be necessary. And and one of the things you said um, reminded me of a, a comment you made in a recent panel titled No War in Ukraine that people can watch on the YouTube channel for Another Europe is Possible. Again, one of these um, engagements that you've been doing, uh, you argued that a central part of the problem globally is, you know, you talked about debt, but you also talked about just the acceptance of existing conflicts as normality. Um, you say there's basically this kind of slippery slope where the international community looks at border violations and mass violence as somehow normal as long as it doesn't cross some political threshold. And against that slippage, you take a hardline anti-imperialist position and say that, quote, there won't be any stability without U.S. and Russia dialing back security strategies, stashing away the weapons and acting together to demilitarize the world globally. And the solution that you offer in that conversation is labor centric demilitarized solutions, which is in some ways what you're describing, right? These sort of networks of people. Yeah. And and you, you admit, though, that like that sort of revolutionary politics is hard to envisage right now um, because, of course, there is this, you know, this doom rhetoric of we're on the brink of World War III, where in order to halt the Russian advance, the only imagined solution is direct military support, um, right? So the establishment of a no-fly zone using U.S. military power, um, you know, uh, this is this is the limits of of it seems like the imperialist imaginary, you know. Tariq, uh, Tarek Ali just recently said that you know the only way out is agreeing to a conference in which certain parts of Ukraine are basically ceded to Russia, and that struck me as you know like kind of outrageous. Yeah. You know, even though he's presenting it as this rational thing, like this is this is assuming that a madman like Putin will be appeased by that, mm. right? Like. Um, and, and this is, I mean, like, this is something Tony Wood, who wrote the book Russia Without Putin, also talks about that he's, he see, Putin seems to be now uh, actually insane, mm-hmm. that his irrational hopes in Ukraine are to tear the country apart in, in order to show that the West is not going to rescue you, that the Ukrainian government will need to basically give up territory in order to stop the terror. Um, do you... I mean, like, what's your position on this rhetoric around NATO needing to intervene militarily now to stop the spread of Putin's violence? And and what of this kind of concept of partitioning the country as like a reasonable solution? Um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm glad that you mentioned it in the email as well. I'm glad that you you mentioned the kind of the Tariq Ali thing, because I'm, you know, I 
I get really frustrated with some parts of international left, um, mainly mm-hmm. Western left, uh, and with some of the duanes of the progressive sort, uh, shall we say. And I try to not go after the names because I just can't be bothered at this point. There is too much going on, but also I, it's it's petty. And, you know, we'll, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out when the dust settles. But when Tariq comes out with this kind of... Uh, suggestion in inverted commas, uh, it just makes my blood boil more than Putin's bombs because Mm. you expect a little bit more from somebody who held an anti-imperialist position his whole life. You know, uh, there are actual people living on the territory of Ukraine and if if you also start seeing them as some sort of pawns in imperialist games, just as some imperialistic powers do, then to my mind, you lose all moral right to continue commenting on the on the on the situation but i'll come back to that in a minute Mm -hmm. uh you've mentioned you know there is um uh, i i i am i have been talking about like labor-centric solution and i i indeed think that uh in the the long run what we need to be thinking about post this uh horrendous crisis whenever it will end uh, is uh global demilitarization because this is some something that uh, and we need to be thinking about how we will manage the end of this war now, because with the with the with the growing hate and growing suffering and justified hate and anger, absolutely justified and justifiable, um, the risks are that uh, once uh, once whatever kind of agreement is achieved and ceasefire is uh, is in place, there will be a push for further militarization and arming of more countries with heavier weapons, with, with more potential destruction. And we have to avoid that at all costs. This is not... Uh, This is not something that will bring us a more peaceful world. But of course, uh, that kind of demilitarization will mean that some of the first people who will have to put down the weapons after Russia is pushed to do that will have to be the United States. They will have to lead that process. And I, uh, you know, it's hard to envisage that, but I, 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 you know, we we need to, we need to imagine the future before we can build it. Um, And, you know, we need to learn from this horrendous, escalation um, that, uh, you know, not that keeping the NATO after 1991 was a historical mistake. Uh, There was no reason for it to stay around, uh, but to keep selling weapons uh, and uh, uh, stoke conflicts. But I don't want to focus on on, on NATO too much, um, uh, kind of on on the kind of validity of it or kind of the right for it to exist. Like, I, I, I really do not think that military alliances that uh, kind of sell sell weapons and wars around the world should be around at all because they they you know if you if you spend so much money invest if so much money research and development into building weapons of the magnitude and complexity as the United States do well you do not build them to put them in a museum you build them to participate in wars so you need to like you know of course, it, yeah. it 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 kind of preconditions a lot of different things and then. You know, and then when it comes to the point where those weapons are potentially, like, are about to potentially be used, then it becomes a little bit more clear, clearer uh, to a lot of politicians and people on the ground that uh, exactly how lethal and how uh, how lethal those weapons are and how uh, how ecologically also detrimental they are, and we need to think about that as well, even though it's often not the, the top of the conversation, it's but true. also how. Um, 
how unwilling we are to actually use those weapons because the no-fly zone, and I agree on this, that like, you know, no-fly zone that a lot of people in Ukraine are calling for means uh, an unle- means unleashing yet, yet even more violent phase in this horrendous conflict. And it will mean more suffering, it will mean uh, clashes of uh, fighter jets of the top order uh, of uh, of U.S., NATO, various uh, various countries over this in the sky of Ukraine, over Ukrainian land, and it will mean more destruction. We've seen what happens uh, when um, NATO air um, air forces come into countries. There will be what we see now in Mariupol. There will be way more of it. So I'm holding this position that you know some in Ukraine will not necessarily uh, automatically agree with. But I because there is so much destruction and suffering happening right now that many believe that you know once the the uh, the sky is closed that somehow it will the situation will become more peaceful and it will be easier to protect Ukraine. I do not believe that. I think it will it will mean a further escalation of the conflict. Conflict. And you know we have this kind of horrendous cost-benefit analysis of what will what will bring less and what will what what kind of actions will bring more destruction and suffering. To that end, you know things that uh, people like Tariq, uh, uh, like the narratives like Tariq Ali's are suggesting that perhaps let's just kind of agree and and uh, give a give a bit give a little bit of uh, concessions to Putin just to prevent. Uh, further escalation. Well, that's what we did in 2014 mm-hmm. when they've taken the Crimea and they've taken parts of Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast. Has that stopped Putin? Has that appeased him? No maniac in the history of the world has stopped by getting a bit and getting away with it. It should have been right. nipped in the bud. It should have been nipped in the bud during in Chechnya, in Abkhazia. It should have been nipped in the bud when people were gassed uh, by Russians, uh, and it wasn't. Mm. And of course, this uh, all of this is happening in the international context, where international institutions that are that are aimed to prevent uh, conflicts, such as in, such as the United Nations, have been dysfunctional for years. Not least because they allowed United States get away with all sorts of crimes and spitting onto the rules. So when Russia started breaking those rules, nobody could seriously, uh, you know, uh, hit them on the head and, uh, and say, well, you know, you can't, you can't do this. And Putin said it directly to various uh, commentators and correspondents and politicians. Well, you know, United States were told not to go into Iraq and they did. Why can't we? This is what's used as the justification, yeah, this kind of whataboutism argument, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, I do not side with him at all, but I'm just you doing this, to saying this to suggest that the international so-called order has been disorderly for a very long time. And it either works for every, it, the rules either apply to everyone or they don't. Exactly. Uh, and there has have been precedents that created that allowed for these narcissistic sadism of Putin to blossom to what what it had. And I like like some commentators like Oksana Shevin, for example, an excellent Ukraine scholar, uh, used this frame recently as well. I like thinking because like, you know you look at Putin's behavior and a lot of it doesn't make sense, but some of it does. But what 
what does allow us make some sort of sense of what he's doing is the he's trying, trying to understand his relationship Putin's regime relationship, Russia's relationship to Ukraine through the frame of domestic violence and narcissistic relationships. Hmm. Entitlement, uh, uh, belittling, devaluation, um, this kind of love, love bombing while hitting, uh, displaced affection and aggression simultaneously. Uh, it's all in there. Hmm. It's all in there. And again, you know, we're coming back to kind of geopolitical foreign policy analysis. It's very classic colonial imperialistic behavior. He feels entitled to this land. You know, if you have a problem with NATO, start a war with NATO. Don't start a war in Ukraine. In 2014, Ukraine had no intention of joining NATO. It was a completely fabricated situation. So these suggestions of somehow you know, uh, partitioning Ukraine to prevent civilian deaths. Well, what's going to happen to people in the occupied territories? Mm-hmm. What is going to happen with them? Do you think their lives will be spared? Are they going to have a jolly life? But also, the people on the territory of Ukraine have very have sent a very clear message that they do not want to be under Russian occupation. Yeah, of course. So mm-hmm. who is Tariq Ali or anybody else to say that, why don't we just kind of, you know, give a couple of cities to Russia and then we're going to spare some lives? Well, what about the lives of people in those potentially occupied cities? Yeah, there's no consideration for that. No, no. It's, it's a continuation of the imperialistic propaganda of Moscow. And I, I will never agree that, especially on the left, we, can, we should be taking this kind of narrative and position. Yeah, I mean, and I, I appreciate that kind of moral clarity in some sense, right? Like, and, and, and I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier or that we were discussing earlier around this kind of the, the, the fundamental messiness and complexity of the situation. Um, but to just kind of jump off of what you were saying and that really profound in, insight uh, about the kind of imperialist mindset being akin to uh, like a domestic abuser combining a certain kind of like love bombing with just outright violence. You know, there's this there's this disconnect between Putin's bizarre rhetoric of, you know, de- denazification as a pre- pretense for war. And many have pointed out the irony of that, given Zelensky's background. Yeah. But Russia, Russia repeatedly lies in order to justify the war on sort of humanitarian grounds, um, saying that, you know, Russian speaking residents in the Donbass region have been subjected to genocide, that, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian forces bombed a kindergarten in eastern Ukraine in mid-February. All of these claims to, you know, paint Russia as intervening uh, on sort of humanitarian and ethical grounds. Um, all of these things have been contradicted, all of these these lies. Mm. But, you know, your book talks about um, how, uh, you know, information wars create a certain kind of virtual reality. And so it, yeah. you know, it begs the question, like, does it even matter that the, that the lies are outed, right? The lies still produce reality in some sense. And, and Ukraine is now being forced to face that reality, right? So it becomes very difficult to find the room for complexity, right? Like this is, this is the kind of uh, bind that you're in where it's either Putin is a savior or who's eradicating fascism in Ukraine, or, you know, Ukraine doesn't have any neo-Nazis. It's like, it's always either or. Um, And so I guess like the question is, you know, why do you think we can't get a nuanced portrayal of the situation? 
Is it a strategic necessity on both ends to kind of create this sort of east-west good versus evil picture? And what are the consequences? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, it's I, I like complex questions. I think one of the reasons why it's difficult to get a nuanced analysis because you need to have a coherent frame, mm-hmm. right? To make sense of something, like how we do it in, in analytical scholarship. We choose a specific frame and through that we kind of try to make sense of something. Mm-hmm. But what we need what what is needed here is is kind of is an, is, a, is an understanding that conventional frames don't work. That you need to have a different methodological approach. You need to treat what constitutes evidence differently. So you need to review your epistemological, methodological, and ontological standings uh, that that are so conventional in Western scholarship, and that kind of that really undermines a lot of um, kind of you know. Uh, honed down political science approaches here. I've, I've been one of the things that I've been developing in my scholarship and with uh, scholars. I, I were I kind of I, I heard in different conference streams is is precisely that is that you cannot you cannot use methodological, ontological, and epistemological frames that have been developed in societies where there is a rule of law and then try to analyze a society where there isn't. Uh, you know, however imperfect the rule of law is, and like, you know, I do not have any naive views about it. I've lived in the UK for almost 18 years. I, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of, you need to, uh, you need to be much more flexible, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And like one, one of the things as you know, we've just mentioned, you know, this kind of, for example, use psychological frameworks of understanding relationships to understand how foreign relations work between Ukraine and Russia. You know, so it kind of looking like having much more interdisciplinary uh, and open minded approaches to understand how these things work. And what you said was actually quite, quite interesting is you say that, uh, you know, there isn't very often there isn't logic or uh, there, there, there are all of these contradictions in how Russia justifies its um its behavior towards Ukraine, it's, 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 it's in one sentence, it says it's invasion. In another sentence, it says it doesn't. These famous letters justifying Ruski Mir and Ukraine, kind of Ukraine-Russian bro- brotherhood, whatever, that Putin occasionally publishes issues uh, that kind of that get read by, by all of his army and uh, administrators. Like there is, there is so much non sequitur in them. There is such a such a salad of hist of various historical bits that you know for any scholar you just kind of go whoa this this doesn't add up on any level right. but it does create this virtual reality and in the in the words of Pyotr Pomerantsev nothing then after that kind of stuff nothing is true and everything is possible and it doesn't have to add up mm. because when people don't believe anything that comes out when they you know when they when it's that they're too easy to convince that Anything that, that that is being shown to them as evidence is is just a fabrication. There's been um, uh, you probably have seen I don't know. There's been such a flow of information. I don't know if you've seen or not, but there's been um, uh, videos circulated of people in the cities of Russia being interviewed by Western correspondents. Uh, like they were trying to show them the bombing of Ukrainian cities and asking them what they think about the war. And they 
as soon as the, these people get approached in the street, they go, I'm with Putin, I don't want to know anything. This is all lies. Nothing is happening there. Uh, we trust him. And there is this kind of weird combination of denying reality, uh, uh, kind of unwillingness to engage. There, there, there will be some sort of, you know, mix, some sort of fear in that mix because we're talking about Putin's Russia and, mm-hmm. you know, what can happen if you criticize Putin or his uh, policies in there and his conduct. But there is this kind of like weird, weird reality being created. And indeed, it kind of doesn't doesn't quite make sense, you know, and this whole thing about protecting Russian speaking population. So Kharkiv is, is a predominantly Russian speaking town and they, they have been fighting to the nail, trying to keep uh, uh, Putin's uh, um, Putin's troops out. But also the whole kind of pretext of the invasion this time around. Well, Russian forces, Russian troops have been on Ukraine's territory since 2014. Mm. Why, like, mean the second Minsk agreement was signed in 2015. Why would Ukraine wait till Russia brought all these troops to its borders to start killing its civilians? If you look at how it's all being presented in the Russian TV, in the in the kind of in the fake, in the fake salad of history that that is being pushed on Russian TV. Uh, as kind of pretext justification, it all does make sense because all of these years they've been saying that the West is after Russia, that they're encircling mm-hmm. Russia, that uh, you know Ukrainians are developing all sorts of weapons and they're preparing to attack and retaliate and they're after these poor DNR, LNR republics. That kind of stuff has been stoked up for years. Mm-hmm. So within that frame, it makes sense. So you kind of, if you try to kind of have a bit of a more nuanced analysis, like, you know, some of them are now coming out of, you know, like more Russian scholars of Russia are now being listened to than the, and a lot of them who were saying uh, for a number of years now that Putin has, Putin has lost it. They're going to start going into, into crazy wars. Uh, they're, you know, the domestic discourse is completely off, off the, off the tracks. Uh, those commentators were being treated as if they are kind of being hysterical. And they weren't. No, yeah. Right? So I think that kind of the the bringing more of those, uh, more of that scholarship into the uh, uh, into the kind of common sense understanding of what's going on in Russia and the justif- in Russian justification for, for their foreign policy is something that needs to happen. So I'm hoping and I'm seeing kind of a little bit more of that nuance analysis coming out but we need to be think seriously rethinking what what kind of we and what do we understand by rigorous scholarship and 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 being more flexible with our with our methodological ontological and epistemological frameworks when we try to make sense of something that doesn't quite fit our conventional frame of understanding absolutely yeah like some basic notion of truth needs to be unsettled here oh absolutely and and you know like you mentioned, um, you know, the kind of trickle of more and more insightful commentary on that. Um, Ilya Budretsky's, uh has said that there's this generational divide that we need to reckon with um, if we're to oppose the war. I think that's, that's um, you know, worth maybe thinking through because, yeah. you know, he, he points out young people have greater access to information in Russia, while the older generation especially is receiving their information from state-run media pretty much exclusively. Yeah. And so, you know, the the political technologists, as you call them, from Russia are splitting uh, the country in half along these kind of generational lines. 
And of course, you know, like there's a certain level of desperation as, as Putin is throwing people in jail for as many as 15 years for opposing. This is, you know, the, this is the new law that he's enacted uh, for contradicting the narrative around the war. Um, you know, this is this is something that, as I say, you describe as information warfare in your book, um, a form of kind of communicational warfare that necessarily happens, as you put it, in an information vacuum. Um, and I, I guess what you're what I'm hearing you say is that those strategies are better understood now, um, whether that understanding actually prevents the effects of it. They're better understood, this kind of post-truth universe. Um, and I guess like the the practical question is like, you know, how does the information blockade, to use another term from your book, get dismantled in Russia? I mean, some communicators in the West have leaned heavily on this, you know, this dim hope that Russians will be using VPNs to get around the information blockade, but that seems extremely limited. And I guess like from your perspective, thinking back on some of the insights of your book, like what role does social media play this time around? Is it just another tool for manufacturing opinions, for propaganda and manipulating social reality? Or do you think it can be a meaningful counteroffensive against oligarchic and state-controlled media? It is It is a very interesting and a very important question because, and I, I agree with uh, Ilya that uh, his commentary is always extremely nuanced and uh, and, and and thoughtful. Um, he's, he's a great he's a great voice. Um, mm. There is this generational divide, and indeed, you know, I you kind of we can. There, there are all sorts of jokes going on around Ukraine now that you know there are all these people like whose heads are full of cotton wool. They're called like you know Vata Vatniki, uh, who just kind of can't make. Uh, can't think for themselves and so on and so forth. But, you know, you know it and I know it. If we we all make decisions um, on the basis of the information that's available to us, if we only get one specific type of information fed to us the whole time from one one type of source, well, is it that we can't make sense of it? Is it that we simply haven't heard a different narrative for a very long time? Right. And, uh, you know, in an, in an atmosphere of distrust, in an, in an atmosphere of... You know, like when there are enough fears and insecurities, those kind of um, there are and, and you know with with smart political technologies and propagandists, people are relatively easy to manipulate. It's actually much easier than we like to think we are uh, to manipulate. So that kind of you know the generational divide uh, is important to tackle. And, and indeed, young, young people are a bit more digitally uh, literate, and they have access to different sources of information. Um, and uh, they generally kind of, you know, they grew up with a lot of different technologies and they, they kind of, they know how the eco chambers work and so on and so forth. But again, as you, you yourself say, it's not the majority of population, but that, but the kind of the, there is, there is a change in, uh, there is a change in the society and we haven't seen the extent of it yet, because, not least because it's very dangerous to, uh, to kind of come come out on the streets or organize yourself politically quite vocally mm-hmm. because the the cost is extremely high. Um, so with the information blockade, I think it can sort of, you know, it can it can do two things. Well, more than two things, but like two off the top of my head. So on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, we can say that you know the that the Russian television can hammer even more rubbish into the heads of Russian people. But at the same time, you know when you're there, there is a counter reaction because when your government starts blocking social media, starts blocking all sorts of satellite channels, uh, like cancels a bunch of 
TV channels that like, you know, as soon as they disagree with you, they get dissolved. Mm. That also makes people think. Right. Right. Like, you know, why, why are all of these people all of a sudden enemies of the people just overnight? Right. That, that disappearance is made visible, right? It's, it's, it's apparent. Precisely. Precisely. And also we need to think about, so there are, you know, with, even with the information blockade and which is actually quite interesting, you said that there is the whole VPN thing, but you know, uh, a couple of uh, retirees with a, with a small TV in the corner of their room will not necessarily be using that, will they? But what uh, our, uh, comrades from the anonymous group were doing is they were they were hacking into all sorts of like state tv not just satellite but cable set state tv channels and were showing videos of bombing of ukrainian cities marches of ukrainian people through the cities with their flags going russians get out we are not welcome here they were doing that they've been doing this now for two weeks wow and that's been fantastic mm-hmm Absolutely fantastic. So there are ways of getting through that information blockade because there are, you know, there there are a lot of friends and allies elsewhere. Uh, because in the, you know, if your if your main um, if your propaganda rests on on these fabricated narratives and twisted history salad, well, there there are also, you know, you are not the only one who has that kind of weapon. There there are there are savvier people who can fight you back on that. So I'm not trying to over to overestimate the effect of this, but like you know that, but I'm, just to highlight that that info blockade can be broken and it is it does get broken regularly. Mm-hmm. As for the social media, uh, whether it's a kind of tool for good or tool for ill, well, it's it's kind of both. I've seen the power the kind of the organi- the the organizing uh, and connectivity power of it uh, in Ukraine. So um, you know, a lot initially people people were using Facebook a lot, and then I'm talking to Southern 14 and kind of around that time mm-hmm. um, and a bit earlier. But a lot of a lot of that kind of organizing has moved to um, Telegram and Signal because they they are much safer, um, of course, and you can't you know you can't be tracked as easily. But social media platforms have been used. Of course, they get used for disinformation and. Uh, uh, we all know about Cambridge Analytica and, you know, in the United States, there is its own story about what social media has been doing with elections. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, those platforms do allow for grassroots organizations to organize, to mobilize, to signal about certain things happening here or there, to base, to upload videos of specific abuses, uh, torture, beatings, you name it, instantly and make and make that story global. And that is, um, again, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but it is a very powerful weapon because then that evidence is there. There, there, And that also, the power of that is recognized in Russia. And this is why Putin's regime is blocking all sorts of social media. Sure. Specifically so that alternative stories to the Russian state propaganda is not being shared. So I think it it can be a force for good and it can be a force for uh for for propaganda it can be either but it's you know but it's sometimes you know it's it's sort of sometimes it's the best you got right um yeah yeah and i mean like ultimately it is a tool uh for collective Mm self-education and that can be wielded in one of in, in multiple ways in the same way that unity and solidarity can be weaponized um and then also be a source for for liberation and peace i mean um, this is something I wanted to talk about in relationship to the way that your book theorizes the state itself as an entity, right? Like it has these, it contains these long, 
theoretical passages where you're thinking about how states are formed. Um, and, and to me, this is, is rooted in this kind of, in some sense, collective self-education, this narrative or mythology um, that you that you build in order to have something like a coherent or stable sense of your own nation. I mean, what you say is that the nation is not, quote, just an empty bureaucratic entity. It's made up of people. Um, and, and you say, like, the reality is that neoliberal marketization is an offensive on any other form of statehood. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of use this as a way of talking both about the the question of sort of states and how they're formed and reproduced, but also how economies are themselves kind of normalized and and reproduced, like a specific economic model. You know, like this this idea that you know there I think there's a latent desire in your book to at least raise the question of what actually is the Ukrainian nation. You know, you say like, is it a thing that needs revival or construction? Mm -hmm. And if it's the latter, should we, you know, should you construct it from scratch or on the basis of some historical foundation? And that literally now feels or seems like a life or death question. Um, and and the, the truth that you want to underscore in the book over and over again is that um, the myth of two Ukraines is is destructive. It's an incredibly destructive myth because in truth, Ukraine is a, quote, multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-religious country. So that fiction that there are just two Ukraines is about a specific kind of manipulation that conflicts with what you call class formation and accumulation struggles between foreign and domestic capital, oligarchs, the EU, the US, and Russian business interests. So, I mean, you know, just thinking about this in relationship to the current struggle, you know, like, how does, for example, the work of decolonization differ from this kind of, you know, ethno-nationalist rhetoric? And how how do you see Ukraine being kind of like denied a right to real, independent, multicultural, multi-ethnic existence? I mean, you know, how do you, where do you find unity, I guess, in this in this moment? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very important question, especially, as you say, this crucial historical juncture, because it was already quite, um, you know, it was it was. It was made. It was made an urgent and problematic and painful question by, at the moment of Russian invasion, um, in 2014, annexation of Crimea. Because the rhetoric, actually, there was already early 2007, 2009, from Putin's office and in some other spots as well. But there were some famous speeches he's made during those years, where Ukraine's right to independent state would have been questioned. Has been questioned. So. Um, those people who are surprised now that uh, Putin doesn't recognize Ukraine's right to self-determination hasn't haven't been listening to him. He was loud and clear about it. Mm -hmm. And hello, 2014, he's invaded the country, saying that you know it's a kind of a made-up state. Well, which state isn't made up? I haven't met exactly. one so yeah, far. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but the whole thing of you know Ukraine being an entity and there's this kind of the myth of two Ukraines now it's kind of it's becoming more even more urgent and more sensitive like sensitive to put it mildly a political topic you know in in, in this uh, interview with Democracy Now that Tariq Ali has recorded a couple of days ago or was it yesterday I don't know like I watched it this morning. There is also this kind of appeal that, oh, you know, the majority of country wanted to be kind of closer with Russia. And that, so one part wanted to be closer with Russia, but another part wanted to be closer with the West. And that is just bullshit. Mm -hmm. 
1991, there was a referendum, all national referendum on independence of Ukraine, where the people who lived in the 2013 boundary of Ukraine, boundaries of Ukraine, wanted to be an independent nation, independent state called Ukraine. And in some in some areas, up to no, no, over 90% voted yes. In the Crimea, it was something like today, I don't remember the exact number, so please forgive me, I don't want to kind of belie the actual statistics, but it was something to the tune of 60 plus, 17 some spots. In Donbass, it was still quite high, you know, like, you know, 70, 80, uh, depending on the kind of district and so on and so forth. So it wasn't as overwhelming as, as in the West, but it was still very significant, mm-hmm. right? And the, the kind of the lower rate uh, of that in the Crimea made sense because uh, the Russian Navy, uh, Russian Navy uh, officials would retire and stay living in their dashes in Crimea. So, of course, they wouldn't vote for anything else. They, they, they wouldn't go back to where their families were before they became military. They would stay in the Crimea because the, the weather is nice and it's nice climate. And, you know, why not? You're kind of on a state-funded uh, summer house. So, um, yeah, so that kind of the division into two Ukraines is actually, it's something that became a, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, in some regions, there are more people who kind of, who, who uh, for whom Russian is a kind of primary language in some areas. It's kind of there are more of those uh, who speak Ukrainian, but pretty much everybody uh, is bilingual in Ukrainian. People switch back and forth, and most people, including myself at home, we speak some sort of you know odd odd mixture of both, which is called surzhik. And in every in every region, it's a bit different because. You know, depending on which kind of empires through the history of Ukraine you were under, you kind of absorb different bits of it. And, uh, you know, to kind of to highlight kind of how oppressed, just kind of a, a bit of a side comment, like how oppressed, so to speak, in inverted commas, Russian was as a uh, as a language in Ukraine. So I grew up in Vinica, which is center west Ukraine, close to Moldova re- border. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a regional center, like a like a borough center or state capital of Vinitska Oblast. And there were 33 or 34 state schools in the city of 350,000 people in 89, out of which three had the language of instruction as Ukrainian. In the rest of schools, Ukrainian was taught as a foreign language. Hmm. So that's the oppression of Russian, right? right? When Ukraine, and I was bullied for being from the loser's school, uh, being a teenager. Because Ukrainian speaking schools were like losers' school, so that's 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 the oppressed Russians, right? right. And uh, so when when Ukraine um, when you when these when this kind of language question gets um, brought uh, brought to the fore, and indeed kind of adopting this kind of like there there was some like poor time in around language laws uh, after Yanukovych fled in two thousand fourteen. But when Ukrainian when Ukrainians are saying we're not going to have Russian as the second official language, they are not claiming an ethno ethnonational state. They are decolonizing from centuries of Russian imperialism and Russification. Mm-hmm. Like there were times during the Russian Empire rule over what is now Ukraine, where you could go to Siberia for twenty years for singing a Ukrainian song. Wow. Because Ukrainian culture and language was 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 to be eliminated, and there was Catherine the Great, and there were people before her uh, who wanted to destroy. Because 
their uh, their territories of Ukraine, they were in the, in the territory of the present day Ukraine. There were different forces through its history who were tra- who were fighting against Russian colonialism. The, the, the most famous, of course, is the Cossack Republic, right? So that needed to be eliminated. So to to and but because you know Ukrainians are white and it it they are in Europe, they're that kind of. They're, they do not. They kind of they fall through the cracks of post-colonial decolonial scholarship that is still stuck in the what I call the hall of mirrors of West European colonialism of Latin American and African countries, uh, and and with their own you know ethnocolors ethnocolor schemes and linguistic schemes. So, but there were different imperialisms and colonialisms, uh, and we need to remember that. So. Ukraine, when it became independent and it voted for independence, like in the in the constitution that was adopted and updated from the previously Soviet one, uh, a few years after Ukraine became independent, it's written in there that all minorities, all languages are to be cherished, respected. In any area, there is I don't remember the exact proportion, but if there is a certain proportion of certain ethnic population, you can get state-funded school so that your kids study in that language. Uh, you, there are different cultural programs and so on and so forth. The only thing that Russia, that Russian, uh, didn't get was the state of the second official language. And that in itself was enough for Russia to kick off and use it as a pretense of oppression. 90% plus in 2013 of printed press was in Russian in Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, so we need to kind of remember about that. And I do think that, you know, the collective identity of Ukrainians, of Ukraine as, as a nation state, should be built on those principles of Benedict Ardenson's uh, imagined community, and that is everybody who politically chooses to be a Ukrainian, no matter what color, no matter what religion, uh, no matter what gender they are, uh, what gender, sex, uh, you know, wh- whoever they are, if you choose to be a part of this country, that's the collective identity that that constitutes Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And that is written in the constitution. And if you see who's fighting in the territorial battalions. If you see what kind of, you know, we have, what kind of people we have on TV, uh, what kind of people we have in the parliament, we have different ethnicities uh, of different linguistic and religious communities. It's not a country that's kind of building some sort of ethno-national state. And indeed, people who call themselves ethnic Ukrainians are themselves a a product of mixture of all sorts of peoples going through the territory of Ukraine because it has been on the crossroads of empires for centuries. So it would be ridiculous to claim that there is some sort of purity to what is Ukrainian. Like generally, ethnic purity is is a fiction of sick minds, right? So I think that it's important to to look to the history of Ukrainian nation formation as in nation state formation and independence formation. But when we talk about political subjectivity of what constitutes Ukrainian, it needs to be this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious, including atheists like myself, uh, people who who care about this this land, who care about its people, and want to make want to want to build the best of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, I think uh, some of the appeals and appeal of digging through history and some regalia. You know, a lot of people started wearing these embroidered shirts and everything else, which I found a little. I find it irksome a bit. I have to admit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably won't earn any friends by saying <laughs> this, but it was basically to many. But I, I understand why this was happening, because the very, the very, the very existence of an identity that's independent from Russian has been questioned 
and used as a pretext for a military invasion. Who wouldn't try to dig through history and go, no, wait a minute, we actually do have something of our own, mm-hmm. right? So that context is very important. You know, it's not it's not like Ukrainians out of the blue decided to kind of dig through their history and say we're the superior nation and started invading their neighbors. No, it's the opposite. That's right. Um, and to, to that point, I mean, uh, so many, you know, powerful points made there, you know, just trying to widen. I wanted to pick up on this idea of trying to widen the frame of decolonial studies beyond a certain kind of hall of mirrors that is itself like truly, you know, reductive. Um, you know, there's been uh, on the left in, in, you know, in the West, at least this kind of reckoning around the disproportionate coverage of the conflict in Ukraine and, and the sense that, you know, the reason why it's, it's front of our minds is in part, um, as you, as you said, the, the whiteness of, of the kind of, you know, prototypical Ukrainian political subject. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea, I guess, here is that cr- the crisis is revealing this contradiction that we already kind of knew was there, where, you know, the question of Palestine is just not front page news. It's it's the case that 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 gets kind of si- sidelined. Um, but it has it has become sort of, you know, central to the, the one part of the discussion around Ukraine. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, um, are you sympathetic to that sort of critique or do you think there's something exceptionally threatening about this specific incursion that does warrant the level of coverage? And where do you, I guess, see a Eurocentric lens limiting kind of the coverage of the particular impact of the crisis on, for example, African and Asian refugees fleeing uh, Ukraine? Um, thank you for this very important question. I I agree that the kind of the the perceived Europeanness and whiteness of Ukrainians is is part is part of the kind of different treatment of Ukrainians here. Geographical location of the country is very important as well. But also mm-hmm. what we need to and what we need to understand to remember is that Ukrainians started being treated as European and white as in equal to other Europeans, as in EU Europeans, only only two weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, I faced discrimination and I was told to uh, <laughs> go home uh, in, in the UK a number of times. And I was asked whether I'm a, um, you know, whether I'm a, 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 an exotic dancer or a, or a cleaner of plates or whether I'm looking for a husband. Uh, I've, I've been asked that by gross men in pubs. You know, so yeah. that kind of stuff and that kind of attitude that's like, oh, you're the poor man of Europe kind of thing or woman or whatever that is that you are. And again, like, you know, not that there is anything wrong with being a dancer or, or, a, ta- or, a, or a table cleaner, but there are those kind of stigmatizing stereotypes that exist. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that kind of attitude that's reflected in visa regimes, that's reflected in cultural attitudes, it was there the whole time. And now all of a sudden it's like oh 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 actually oh look this they they they, they actually are like us but also I think that there is this kind of combination of we've kind of othered these people but they do look like us but also if we do not do anything about this there is a realization that Putin will not stop on the border of Ukraine mm-hmm. right but this kind of so there is that the geopolitical the geopolitical and geographic thing but I completely agree that there is this kind of the the ugly aspects of othering 
and racism that's inbuilt in how in the in the refugee and migration policies and attitudes in Europe and globally is is really showing its face. We've seen the scenes on the border where foreign students, non-white students who who were trapped, who were studying in Ukraine and now they were trapped uh, on the border. They were trying to flee the country from the bombs. They were they had lots of problems crossing into Poland, for example. And there were some really ugly scenes at the border. And I, you know, I kind of I agree with that. I I res, I, I I feel that sentiment, and I I I emphasize with that sentiment that. Well, you know, when this is happening with Palestinians or Syrians, kind of the the, the coverage is nearly the same. Uh, the uh, the kind of uh, the the language that is being used to to discuss humanness and civil the degree of civilization, this kind of really odd and grotesque language, mm-hmm. like the way the way that people from the, the way that refugees from Syria are discussed and the way that the way that refugees from Ukraine are discussed are completely different. Ways and there is this. What I think is very important for uh, us as commentators, as scholars of this, uh, for the journalists, but also, but more importantly, for politicians and especially those on the left, is to to not allow this to create a rift between us, but rather to to uh, for for everybody in Ukraine right now. And we're doing this with this political organization I'm a part of when we're talking about free passage for refugees from Ukraine. We're talking about everyone in Ukraine and we're talking about all refugees in Europe. We're not talking only about Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that actually we can, we can because it gets, you know, it can get you, it can get used to basically yet and yet again split uh, and make rifts uh, politically between different groups who are competing for the crumbs of the table of empires. And we shouldn't allow that to happen. We should actually use this, uh, use this kind of opportunity where uh, the kind of the ugly face of um, uh, refugee treatment in the EU uh, has been revealed yet again, where the mask slipped, and say, "Wait a minute. So, so you can treat refugees with a bit more dignity. Why are Syrian refugees different from Ukrainian? Mm-hmm. Why? We demand." We demand uh, dignity and respect in treatment of all people who are fleeing bombs that you are selling to somebody else. And that that is something like, you know, I think on, especially on the left, what is very important is actually unite around this issue, condemn poor treatment of non-white people on the border in Ukraine and elsewhere, and uh, and reframe the whole kind of narrative, kind of use this example of Ukrainian Ukrainian crisis to say, wait a minute. Like the, where is the color politics of all of this? This needs to be seriously addressed. But I, I agree that there's been horrendous scenes, and uh, uh, and and we see the kind of the, the racism that some of us have always known is there uh, is being is being made very public mm-hmm. in in the kind of in migration, but generally kind of refugee treatment and humanitarian treatment of people. And we need to build an international campaign around this because this is part of decolonizing global decolonizing narrative. You know, to me, just again, I think it, it 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 flows from what you were just saying. Like it's it's fundamentally about knowing who the actual enemy is, mm. right? The enemy, in some sense, is the structure of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, like the piecemeal way in which we attack that enemy is is never going to be enough. Um, these struggles need to be linked. And so, like to to that end, I guess I wanted to. Um, invoke the words of uh, uh, Hannah Perokota, 
who, who recently spoke for a panel on uh, Haymarket Books YouTube channel. And she talked about oh, like, yeah. you know, she talked about um, blocking the assets of this oligarchic clan that, you know, Putin is waging war on behalf of, um, who she said are clearly committed to any levels of, quote, barbarism to secure their power. Um, but according to the publication Mother Jones, uh, many oligarchs have been preparing by layering more and more levels of anonymity on the ownership of their most valuable assets, moves that, na- moves that now limit Western government's ability to root them out. So the, this, this kind of um, task of divesting, of, of you know, withdrawing the financial foundations from under these oligarchs is not necessarily going to work. And I guess like you know, it's just it's just the case that I've rarely seen the media explain where the wealth is coming from. And and so like the first question is, why can't most of the public really take seriously the role of neoliberal capital itself in producing the concentration of military and political power that we're seeing just, you know, wreak havoc on on Ukraine? Um, and your your book is in some ways about trying to make these informal networks and black holes in the economy visible to us. You know, does it like from your perspective, how do you render those things visible? Like, is it about pe- just kind of basically giving people the vocabulary? And, and do you p- think people are starting to gain that? Well, it is very important to make to make these kind of the what I what I call black holes in the in the economy visible. And sometimes it's a bit trickier. Sometimes it isn't. But the thing is that you see um, as much as. Uh, various uh, assets are being made more virtual these days and they kind of get created out of thin air and value creation is quite something else these days than it was 50, 100, let alone 150 years ago. It is still not untraceable, right? Like there are records and there there are transfers and uh, and there are stashes of cash in offshores and uh, there are shell companies and there are um, legal... Uh, uh, services that uh, that register those companies. So there are there are traces. The problem of tracing those traces is um, is the sheer amount of of those various entities, the secrecy around where they're registered, who their actual owners are, the ability to move money in split seconds from one corner of the earth to another. Well, they do not physically move, but you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like you know, they get sh- they, they, their accounts get shifted so quickly that. You know, it's it's not the easiest of things to do. But uh, so exposing these and, you know, like Panama Papers leaks, for example, are, are doing an excellent work of that. Uh, there are, There is great scholarship on, on global value chains. So for example, Duncan Wigan and Leonard Seabrook at um, uh, Copenhagen Business School are doing great work on kind of showing where these wealth uh, networks, uh, kind of how they're created and where money gets stashed. But um, in the grand scheme of things, so you, you mentioned the kind of the anonymity that allows for oligarchs to kind of to hide to hide the cash and uh, kind of and where it came from. So where it came from, it's kind of clear uh, if you if you look hard enough, because you can you can trace the, the value chains if you look into concrete cases. But where it disappears is a bit more tricky. And that kind of anonymity, you know, it's not invented by Russian oligarchs. It's, invest- it's invented by oligarchs in London and in the States mm. and in Switzerland. Uh, those what I call the kind of black holes of uh, black holes in economy in, in, in the global economy and the kind of virtual spaces where accumulation can happen. They were they existed there before uh, capitalism emerged in Ukraine or Russia. 
So the oligarchs who were emerging, who like through privatization and accumulation and concentration of various assets in what is now known as kind of big uh, financial industrial groups or corporations in Ukraine or Russia or anywhere, uh, they, they those those kind of oligarchs in the making, they simply used mechanisms that were already available to them uh, in the global in the global capitalist economy. And those spaces where they're by design, there is a reason why offshore zones exist. There, are, there is a reason why uh, anonymity exists of various accounts and companies and, uh, you know, and confidentiality of accounts. It's because global capital has been trying to stash money away from the public for as long as public started gaining any ground uh, throughout the history uh, of class struggle. Uh, and and it's always global uh, global labor against global capital, and it's more more global or transnationalizing, as it's going to be more technical, as I call it in my book, uh, now than it has ever been before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we talk about uh, oligarchs competing, it's not they're not it's not necessarily the states that are competing; it's various uh, fractions of various capitalist classes that are in the state of competition, but they also have a shared interest which is collective class interest. And they're all interested in protecting and hub and kind of in harboring those spaces where their cash can be stashed. And this and we saw how toothless how not not very far reaching their sanctions were uh, towards Russian oligarchs. And they're, they're and one of the mm-hmm. reasons why they can't those sanctions can't be uh, significantly far reaching is that for the for for various assets to be properly frozen and taken away from various oligarchic groups, including their kind of satellite shell companies, uh, then the rules of global offshore, for example, and transfer pricing and secrecy will need to be rewritten. And that will hit the oligarchs in the United States and the oligarchs in London and the oligarchs in Paris and the oligarchs in Switzerland. And they don't want that happening, do they? No. Remember the Panama Papers, how much has changed? Mm-hmm. Remember the HSBC leaks on like money laundering of warlords uh, and drug and arms dealers. How many people have ended up in prison? Right. Yeah. An absolute zero. And this is something you talk about in the book is just a lack of accountability for the powerful as, as evidence that things, you know, still can't change. Um, that, that question of accountability. Um, and, and I guess like to, to that end, like right now we're seeing... Uh, a pitched battle over the price of gas globally, and it's it's the the crisis is being directly linked to global markets for oil. You know, you have this really insightful article on the energy sector and uh, socio ecological transformation that unpacks a lot of the political economy dynamics around energy transition in a time of global upheaval. Basically, in relationship to this current moment, you know, this is. You know, something that you've also talked about in terms of how Ukraine is reliant, like the rest of Europe, on Russian gas. So there's been a push across the globe to divest from Russian energy in the context of this specific crisis. Um, you know, so war, it, it, war is clearly now, you know, in, indisputably about the links between energy and capital. So while there's all this virtual wealth, oil remains this this kind of sludgy basis of the entire economy in some sense. I wonder, or to what extent you think um, these proliferating boycotts of Russian energy, you know, with all of its financial and political ramifications will actually, on the one hand, impact the global economy, and then on the other, potentially impact Putin's motivations? Well, that's that's a very interesting question. And um, without being pessimistic, 
Um, we've already seen a lot of backtracking on cutting off Russian gas and oil because, well, the the, the connections are a little too strong. Uh, and the thing is that if we take Germany, for example, so Germany's have, Germany is a very energy-intensive economy. There is this whole kind of banging on about Energiewende and the greening, but well, a, lot of, a lot of it was basically Germany writing in uh, it's after unification, uh, all of the Rust Belt industries of uh, Eastern Germany, they were going to write off anyway and their emissions into their starting uh, kind of record. And then, uh, of course, you know, they could write off all of those enterprises and say, look how much we have decarbonized. So we have to be looking very carefully at those kind of greening figures. Mm-hmm. But they have a lot of industry and they, 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 their energy consumption is very high and they're burning lignite. And, you know, after Fukushima, they decided to get, get off nuclear. And now what we see, they have this kind of trade off. So they were going to start using more gas. And now they've been told that they shouldn't be using gas. So they started talking about not phasing out nuclear, which is also bad news. Is you, you, you've looked at my stuff, so you know I have a very strong anti-nuclear position. Mm-hmm. Um, As do I. And yeah, and we have we have this kind of very serious conundrum where the world is dependent on fossil fuels. It's not just just Russian. Generally, we're kind of really hooked on oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, coal as well, even even though uh, kind of some countries are moving away from that. So without without meaningful, so in the short run, it will be it will be interesting to see, you know, there are there, there are some interesting negotiations between the United States and some Latin American countries about ramping up production. But again, you cannot increase oil production overnight. It takes months, you know, mm-hmm. at the very least. It's not it's not turning on and off a tap. It's it's very it's it's, it's a much more complex process. So kind of diversifying supply of fossil fuels from other places is not something that's going to be very easy to to achieve very quickly. And I, I, I cannot see switching off Russian gas and oil too easily, too quickly. United States, I know, have, have, have gone further in this than other countries have. But uh, in terms of European consumption, it, it still remains to be seen what the final outcome will be. But the, what, one of the things that worries me uh, is this kind of the resurrection of nuclear? Because instead of I was hopeful for a couple of days after you know there's been an uh, occupation of uh, of the Chernobyl power plant and then the Nerhodar uh, power plant, which is the largest nuclear power plant in in Europe. And if if that were to go wrong, the the consequences would have been absolutely catastrophic, and that really freaked the whole of Europe out. And so instead of actually going right, we need to denuclear, we need to move away from nuclear altogether, shut, like phase out all of these plants. We see Germany talking about potentially bring, like, you know, not decommissioning theirs. And you go, because we need to decarbonize and move away from Russian gas. And it's, it's this kind of really schizophrenic, not to offend people with schizophrenia, um, a kind of attitude to energy politics because we are we are consuming way too much, mm-hmm. and this is a kind of the general span in the works of gre- of the green transition uh, altogether. Is that the elephant in the room? Is that we need to significantly scale back the consumption altogether, and before that happens, before. Before that happens, all of these dependencies and geopolitical problems will keep throwing the spanner in the works. And Putin will be using, he knows that how uh, not necessarily very easy it is to switch 
from from his supplies. Right. So we'll we'll see kind of how how it uh, how it plays out. I think it's it's a bit early. Like I I I'm a bit wary. I do not want to kind of cast my final judgment on what what the final terrain will look like. I just kind of I thought I'd, I'd outline to you like some of the aspects of of the whole conversation that make me nervous um, at this point, but also quite skeptical. Yeah, and I think what it does, and it's so valuable, is that it offers clarity in these deeply complex, conflictual times, and it thinks about the sort of knock-on effects in ways that um, are so important because. You know, like when you think about the 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 kind of correlation between um, a military invasion, o- global oil prices, oil production, and these kind of geopolitical maneuverings, and the fundamental place of, of financial markets and kind of uh, engineering all of those things, like it, it becomes dizzying to try and picture the entire system functioning. Mm-hmm. It is a chaotic system in some fundamental way. Yeah, I I just want to say, like the other thing I appreciate is just the fact that you are centering. Um, people, like workers, people who are just trying to survive, who are trying to subsist, who are trying to, um, you know, care for themselves and their families and their communities. You know, like there's this line in your in your book where you say um, the socioeconomic struggle of the everyday unifies Ukrainians and acknowledgement of that solidarity is the biggest fear of the precarious rulers. Um, You know, that to me is is like the thing again that provides a certain kind of moral clarity in your work. So I really, really appreciate you making this time to uh, talk to me about it. Thank you, thank you. I, I'm I'm glad that you've you've saved the best for the last uh, <laughs> because I, you know, like I, I I'm I'm just going to make this one final comment because I think the living labor should be the focus of everything, and with that comes the ecological concerns, the concerns about women with blown up children in Mariupol, uh, protection of human life and all life on this planet by looking after each other and after the, after the world around us. And if we are to, to go seriously after oligarchs, and this is something I've, you know, I've said it at a demo in London before, and I kind of I keep banging on about it, and I will keep banging on about it before it happens. If we want to seriously stop value produced by people, and nature leaking from the economy, uh, and dispro- and instead of and and, and being um, misallocated, in a way, because mm-hmm. there is plenty of money and resources to go around to to satisfy e- the needs of everyone on the planet. It's just there are some who are hoarding it and who are misallocating it. So if we uh, if we are to deal the oligarchy the oligarchized Ukrainian economy or any economy, we don't need some sort of commission that works on how to restructure the economy as is now kind of being worked out in the cooperation with the EU and through these kind of different trade agreements. What we need is a transfer of of enter- oligarchic enterprises into collective ownership and management of its workers. Hmm. then the leakage, they will be interested, make it a collective, like give them shares, they're collective owners of it. They will not be interested in stealing money from it because it's their livelihood. They know how it works. They will not be interested in in in, in running it into, into disrepair. They want to have good, they want to have decent lives. They want to live near their families. Ukrainians don't want to be, some, some want to move abroad, but the majority 
are seeking a better fortune somewhere because they simply can't provide for their families and for themselves where they are. And and that is a tragedy and that make uh, that brings tears to my eyes every single time I think about it. Like how many how much how much disruption to social fabric have neoliberal policies and politics and oligarchic kleptocracy have brought? And that has to end. And that can only end when Ukrainians are the true masters of their destiny and when foreign uh, uh, foreign corporations or domestic because capital doesn't distinguish, just like wars don't, just like bombs don't. They take from you your livelihood, your will to live, your time, your creativity, uh, and stash it in offshores on massive yachts. And that, that last bit needs to be eliminated make people in charge of their own destiny and the world will bloom. I really appreciate your words. And um, so thank you so much, Julia. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best. I wish you safety and solidarity and, and I, I wish you victory. Thank you so much, Scott. That that means a lot. It was lovely speaking with you. Um, yeah, let's let's stay in touch. And uh, it was it was I really enjoyed speaking with you. And let's let's hope that uh, we see peace sooner than later, and that the scope of human suffering is as minimal as possible from from now on.